Ah, exes. There's always that one, you know? The one who hangs around, who still wants to be friends, but all they do is cause problems, create trust issues and make you super anxious. They had this friendship that was really oddly codependent. Like, yeah, still sharing the dogs, um, but also, you know, hanging out in very similar social circumstances. That's Beck. She knows what I'm talking about. She's got big ex issues. Because here, I'm not even describing her ex. Don't you worry, we'll get to him. But I mean his ex. She was one of those ones all like, oh yeah, I'm really good friends with my ex. There's nothing weird about it. I could totally give you goss on him when we were together, blah, blah, blah. There's always that one ex who just doesn't quite sit right with you. Most of the time, you know you're overthinking it. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. They're an ex for a reason, right? But sometimes, just sometimes, your spidey senses are bang on. I realised after six and a half years, I had no idea who this human I was living with was. I'm Georgia Love and this is Everyone Has an Ex. Come with me as we dive into a collection of unconventional stories about relationships past through the eyes and the hearts of the very people who lived them. And just a language warning for this episode around any little ears. Beck was 33 and single when she found herself feeling a little lonely. All her friends had partners, were getting married and having babies. And she was single and still wanting to go out, have fun and meet new people. I was at a point in my life where most of my closest friends were in relationships. So through a girl that I worked with, we went out one night, we met some other girls and um, just kind of struck up fast friends with a group of girls who were still out on Saturday nights and having fun and, you know, they're kind of bubblegum mates in some ways, but I kind of figured pretty harmless. They had a fab old time drinking and dancing. They weren't Beck's usual type of friends, but they were single and fun. And that's exactly what she was after at that point in her life. They were in their 30s as well, pretty high disposable incomes, possibly partying a wee bit too hard, possibly sleeping with a few too many of each other's exes or recent flings or just a whole bunch of people living in apartment buildings way too close to each other, drinking way too much too often. You know, good fun to go out with on Saturday night, but maybe not your best mates. One of those girls was Emily. Emily was divorced but had a little bit of a weird relationship with her ex-husband. One day I was like, oh, come and come and meet my dogs. And I'm a massive dog lover. So I was very excited to meet a Chocky Lab and a Golden Retriever and I was like, oh, my God. And then in the middle of meeting the dogs, we're in this house and uh, I'm like, oh, I really like your house. And she's like, oh, no, 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 this is my ex's house. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what am I doing here? And she's like, oh, no, 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 he and I are still friends. Like, it's fine. Like, if if I don't meet anyone better, I'm just going to go back to him. And I remember thinking at the time, Jesus, you're an interesting person. The ex-husband was Mick. And without knowing anything else about him, his surname or even what he looked like, Beck immediately felt for him. Always stuck with me. I just always thought, this poor guy. I guess I just thought, What an incredibly disrespectful way to treat someone that you've ever been close to. So I guess I kind of, in a way, I felt for him before I'd ever even met him, um, as in felt sorry for him effectively. Now, Emily wasn't exaggerating when she said they were still friends. 
She didn't speak about him heaps but saw him a lot. He even still hung out with her and her friendship group all the time. I don't think I knew much. I knew they'd been separated slash divorced for a chunk of time. She was very much happily moving on and seeing new men and da-da-da. Um, I guess what I, mo- most, what I mostly understood was that they had this friendship that was really oddly codependent, like, yeah, still sharing the dogs um, but also, you know, hanging out in very similar social circumstances. These sorts of stories about, um, you know, horrible things that she said to women that he'd attempted to date or whatever. Um, and so I understood that whatever it was between them, like, was long enough ago that I guess you were comfortable to be social with one another. But I don't think I invested in it all that hard, to be honest. And given Beck was hanging out in the same group now too, it didn't take long for them to meet. So I met Mick probably, I guess, a couple of months after I first met Emily. Um, I think I might have been at the pub with him one night the same, like, one night in between those times but without ever properly meeting. Uh, the night I met him, we were at the vineyard in St Kilda. I popped out for a cigarette. I was smoking at the time. And I noticed that he sort of came out with me and I'm like, oh, you're paying a bit of attention. And then when we sat down, he said, oh, can I ask you a really direct question? And I'm like, sure, man, like, I'm pretty direct. He goes, oh, what do you think of my relationship with my ex-wife? And I said, well, I think it's fucked up and unhealthy. <laughs> so there's a truth bomb if there ever was one. And he loved it. He loved that she was direct and saw through what might have been seen as a little bit of weirdness between him and Emily. They kept chatting all night and got along really, really well. When he got up to leave, he pashed me in front of everyone and I was kind of like, whoa, that was impressive. (laughs) It was a pretty bold move given not just, uh, you know, the 10 people we were there with were there, but one of them including his ex-wife. So I kind of... Uh, wasn't that surprised when he sent me a text later the same night asking me out. She was pretty excited. It had been a while since she'd met someone she got along with so well and who she was genuinely keen to see again and get to know. But Emily was her friend first and Beck was well-versed in girl code. So I thought I'll do the right thing and I flicked her a quick texty during the week on Facebook. I don't even think we had each other's phone numbers at that time. Um, being like, hey, you know... Probably already know this, but I just want to suss out that it was all cool with you. You know, Mix asked me out for dinner and she was like, oh, my God, yeah, of course, you two would be amazing together, but, you you know, go for it. So they did. Their first date was dinner at a restaurant in the city. They talked, laughed, ate, drank and picked up where they left off after that very first night at the pub. From there, things just went on a pretty natural trajectory. They'd see each other a couple of nights a week, text and talk on the phone. In the space of a couple of weeks, they were officially a couple. Beck couldn't have been happier with how things were moving along with Mick. Until one night, out of nowhere. It was Emily. Lose 30 kilos if you want a chance of keeping up with me. Until then, you're nothing but a fat bitch that will never do better than my slops. I think then I knew we had a bit of a problem. While it had come out of nowhere, Beck wasn't totally surprised. She'd been more surprised when Emily had said it was cool all those weeks ago. But what did surprise her was Mick's reaction, or lack thereof. 
It never sat with me that he didn't really jump to my defence. It was a whole lot of, oh, Becky, that's just M being M and you've got to understand this, that, and you've got to, you know, she just this, that, you know, and I'm like, nah, grass green, water wet, that'd be crazy. Like, that'd not be cool. They had a huge fight about it. But in the end, Beck's love, forgiveness and understanding prevailed. And in turn, it kind of made her want to be with him even more. I understood that their relationship was codependent and unhealthy and and really felt that he'd kind of been brainwashed by this manipulative. She's a very intelligent, emotionally intelligent um, and mentally intelligent person. So I just sort of thought that he'd just effectively been pretty brainwashed and he was just, I just thought he just really would deserve someone that was going to take care of him and fucking back him and, you know, love him and, and for some reason I felt like that was going to be me. Um, and so I kind of endured imperfect behaviour um, in that context that he'd been living in this really emotionally messed up space for quite a long time and had kind of lost due north of how people could and couldn't treat him and so therefore as an extension of that how people could and couldn't treat me. The messages kept coming but Beck just ignored them. She was in her mid-30s. She didn't want or need the mean girl's drama. She'd only known this girl a couple of months anyway. Having Mick was a much higher priority than losing Emily. We spent less time with that larger friendship group um, and more time together, which, of course, when you're new together with someone is, is lovely, you know. So take me down the coast for surf weekends and, you know, like... Yeah, met his friends and they're all like telling me how much he doesn't shut up gushing about how amazing I am and his friends would be like, you know, Mick just deserves a woman like you and so great to meet you and I knew that these friends hadn't liked her at all and so, you know, I'm getting character references here. I'm like, no, no, I'm doing the right thing. This is a really solid guy and um, I just have to kind of weather this initial storm a bit and that's how it's going to go. And that's how it did go. They spent more and more time together, met each other's families, the conversation was great, the sex was great, they just had fun. He was my first boyfriend, so it was all really novel for me. The only thing stopping this blossoming time in their relationship being absolutely perfect, you guessed it, Emily. He was still catching up with her as a friend, I was having to explain to him that that was all sorts of wrong, she still had a key to the house. Because of, because of the dogs, I didn't even have a key to the house. She would have massive dramatic flare-ups and he would have to settle her down and make sure she was okay. So there was a particular evening when he and I were together when, you know, we'd probably been out for a lovely night, come home, you know, gone to bed, et cetera, et cetera. Middle of the night, we're well and truly asleep and she calls because she can't get a taxi and then she's scared so she has to ring him. So he comes and leaves me in his bed and goes to get her. That to me is a pretty inappropriate thing to do on both of their accounts. Fighting about Emily became a constant theme of their relationship. She'd call, he'd go running, Beck would crack it, he'd apologise and then it would all happen again. He'd say he felt a responsibility to make sure Emily was okay. And Becky was a healer. She wanted to help and fix this guy who'd been so damaged by his ex. I don't exactly remember why or how I got over it, but I was just like, I guess I'd just become conditioned to the crazy. Like, it was literally almost constant. 
Now, Emily wasn't the only thing they had to navigate in those first few months. While Beck was only 33, Mick was 10 years older than her and he'd been married before. His life experience meant he knew exactly what he did and didn't want for future relationships. I think it was like our second or third date that Mick said to me he didn't want to get married ever again. Um, and then he said, and I, he didn't say I don't want to have kids. He said, um, and I have had a vasectomy. This rattled Beck. The marriage part she could handle. It was commitment that she wanted. She didn't really care about the piece of paper. But the kids bit was different. She wasn't desperate to be a mum, but she had still always thought that that time would come. The first time I ever thought about what sort of a mother I would be, my friend who lives in Holland when I was living in Amsterdam, he just turned around to me at ridiculous o'clock one night and he goes, do you know what I love about you? Like I look at you and I can just see the mum you're going to be. Like you're going to be you but you're going to be a mum? And it was like the most beautiful thing and I had literally never thought about that until he said it to me that night. So it was a big deal when the person she loved and saw a future with said kids were off the cards. They were only about six months into their relationship, but she knew how she felt about him. She certainly wouldn't have put up with all the Emily drama if she didn't want to be with this man. But there's no doubt it put a spanner in the works. So they took a week's break. Beck wanted to be on her own to think about whether or not this was a deal breaker. So we had this week apart um, and, you know, I did a whole bunch of yoga and I went down the coast and kind of talked to people about it and... I don't remember exactly how the coming back together happened, but there was a coming back together and he had written me a bunch of letters during that week about wanting to be with me and how much he'd missed me and how horrific this week of being apart and making him realise how much he wanted to be with me, et cetera, et cetera. But it didn't matter what he'd said after that week apart. Beck's mind was already made up. And I was just like, no, I'd rather have you. I'd rather have you than children. And that changed everything. It not only gave both Beck and Mick confidence in their relationship and solidified their future, it gave Beck the strength to finally give Mick an ultimatum. It's me or Emily. She's got to go. This I told you she was toxic all along. She's got to go. So he changed the locks. He put all of her stuff outside his house, messaged her, being like anything that's still in the house, well, out the front's going to the salvos. At the time, I think it was the week apart and I think perhaps that breaking up with me about the children and then me coming back, I think he carried a lot of guilt that he was somehow going to deprive me of some um, life experience that was going to be unethical and immoral of, to, to, to deprive me of. Um, and so when I took considered thought for a week and he had to live for, you know, a week thinking he might have lost me, coming back together where I made that decision. And I think that was probably one of the things that gave him the strength to, to do that and be willing to proper cut ties. She was gone, finally. And the cherry on top, Emily moved to the United States. Pop the champagne. For the first time in their relationship, it was just Mick and Beck. And it was glorious. It was the first time he told me he loved me. We updated our Facebook status. It was a whole thing. And I was like, well, six months in the scheme of the rest of your life with somebody, you know, it's been a bit of a rocky start, but okay, we got there, right? And it felt really good. I was so happy and I moved in not too long after that. So I was living in his house down by the beach and we're just hanging out and um, 
I think eventually his housemate even moved out, which is just like triple bliss. And I changed jobs and I changed jobs so that we could save up to buy a house. And um, yeah, it was just, you know, everybody was so loved up. It went on like this for another six months. They'd go to the gym together every morning, take the dogs for walks along the beach, have dinner parties for their friends, their live bands together. They even bought a house, further solidifying their commitment to each other and creating their own beautiful life together. Nothing could have made it any better. But you sure as hell know one thing could have made it worse. Emily was back. But one of the girls that I still was in touch with got an invite to her housewarming party and it was in an apartment literally across the road from our house. You've got to be kidding. Above the IGA next door to the pub where we hung out every night, where I got off my tram every day. Um, And I was like, oh, this is cool. Now, this was serious cause for a breakdown or at the very least a complete freak out. Not only did she have to see him everywhere, rumours started to flow. We'd see them at the pub, drunken fools, like these barfly idiots that thought they got to have an opinion on my life, pulling me aside, being like, well, pulling him aside in front of me, being like, so how are you going, like, uh, playing the two girls at once? You know, how's that working out for you? And I'd heard it all so many times by then that I'd just pick up my drink and go, I'm going outside for a cigarette, man, I don't need this. Like, and so it was it was constant. It was just horrific. One night we were at the pub and the girl who I had previously been friends with, um, who lived with Emily now, um, was like, you've got to leave the pub because I'm not going to support Em in doing what she's going to do and I'd get these dramatic texts about, you know, I've always said that the two of you deserve better and all this stuff, like just uh, dramatic speak about stuff. Once again, their relationship was put to the test. You can imagine how many conversations he and I had. I was just like, this is really upsetting and he'd be like, oh, Becky, if you really trusted me and I was like, clearly I really trust you, I'm with you, but you know, these are the these are the the parameters. If you see her at the pub, you're not to fucking talk to her, man. Like if you run, like, you know, and he would be like, oh, I'll just say hi. No, you won't. You'll just go. You'll just leave right now because I can't be there every time looking at what you're doing and I can't cope with the fact that she can be as close as she is in proximity and thinking that you guys are going to like be all hangy outy behind my back. So I was really, really clear on my expectations on how much that they couldn't communicate. And he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, We spoke about it a lot, right? And whenever push came to shove and I would kind of confess to him that I was having a really bad week with stress and seeing her face on strangers in the street and like, there were days that I got on the train and tram and literally nearly accidentally sat next to her. Like, It was so bizarre. So we had a number of conversations and quite often he'd turn around to me and be like, Becky, you know, I love you and if you really trusted me, we wouldn't be having this conversation and rah, 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 and, you know, kind of putting it back on me. And so then that is, you know, a really disempowering conversation to have. That makes you then turn around and be the reassurer and be like, no, it is, I do love you and I do trust you. This was Beck's life now, her new normal. He swore the silly rumours were all white noise, gossip, bored, bitchy girls being bored, bitchy girls. He couldn't help that she was around. It's where she lived. He swore he wouldn't speak to her. And Beck believed him. I loved him ferociously. They decided to go to couples counselling. 
They'd invested four years into this relationship and both wanted to make it work. But there were unresolved issues and trust issues that, no matter how happy they were, they just couldn't seem to shake. Enter the professionals. And it really, really helped. So we went back over, you know, the decision to not have children. We discussed, um, you know, everything from our sex life to how we related to one another to, you know, becoming better at communicating. Yeah, it was during those um, sessions where we were just, we were talking about, well, what will it take, you, got, you know, for you guys to know that you really want to be together forever and what would that look like? And um, I think it just came up in that sort of a, a hypothetical context. And one day we went down the waterfront here and we were having a beer and we were talking about what it would look like in a really nice sort of hypothetical way. We were talking about, okay, you don't want to get married, but, you know, what does that mean and what does that look like? And so we started talking about this concept of not getting married and having a, just a fuck-off party with all of our mates and just a, a night that was exactly what we wanted and it didn't prescribe to any religious or traditional or governmental or familial, you know, norms. We could just blank slate it, come up with our own thing. So if you're not getting married, do you then not get engaged? Oh, hell no. If she wasn't getting a wedding or babies, she was sure as hell going to make sure she got a ring. Mick had told me there was this particular Tuesday that he was taking me out. Fuck knows why you have to propose on a fucking Tuesday. Like, how inconvenient. Anyway, <laughs> there's this Tuesday and we're going to go, hey, it's just for a whole night and he's not saying where we're going, what we're doing. So um, it was dinner at Tipo Zero Zero in the city and I had a beautiful dress and my friend did my hair and then we, we were staying at the Langham. So, um, yeah, it was fantastic. It was a full moon. It was a super moon actually and I'm such a moon baby. Um, and super late at night after Tipo Zero Zero, we got back to the um, the hotel and it was a beautiful big corner suite with the view of the city and the moon and everything. And I just remember lying there thinking, if he's not going to give me this ring tonight, I'm flat out just going to ask him myself, like, this is ridiculous because if you're not going to do this now, right, you, you're literally like, this is this is now, this is what we're here for. Um, and then he did and, um, yeah, I said yes and it was all super lovely and, I think he asked me, I can't remember the exact words, but it was, you know, it was our not wedding proposal, you know, um, right down with the champagne and the beautiful moonlight and everything. It had all been worth it. So happy, so happy. And I remember talking to friends afterwards being like, so proud of us for getting through, you know, most particularly that long chunk of therapy and really really hard time and just realizing how ferociously I loved him and that if you really you know throw yourself into something you you can get through it like you can really get through all sorts of different nightmares and I was so proud of us for getting through that. Their not proposal sparked a whole new chapter of their relationship More than five years after that first meeting in the pub, it was like they were high school sweethearts going through the honeymoon period all over again. They were connecting over new things, making life plans and promising to commit to each other in front of the people they loved most in the world. Whether it included the legal piece of paper just didn't matter. The experience of of not getting married, we 
we plan the whole day from a blank sheet of paper, you know. You hear stories about pagan hand fasting ceremonies. Oh, that sounds like us. And, you know, I'm such a word nerd and I love music. Yeah, no, writing my own vows from scratch was one of the most beautiful things I've ever done and interspersed with a whole bunch of song lyrics from um, bands that we'd seen and, and that meant something to me or that were a part of a time that we'd had together. Um yeah, it was just incredible. I was so excited about this day. I bought my dress on Fifth Avenue in New York with my mum because I went for this work trip and it was just absolutely perfect. I still love it. We set a date. The date was exactly, so the day he proposed, the reason we had to wait till this particular Tuesday was we always talked about, you know, the concept of our relationship being meeting each other halfway. And so the particular day in November was exactly halfway between our birthdays. Um, And then the engagement that the proposal was also the other six months halfway between our birthdays so the party was going to be in November because that was halfway and we we were engaged not engaged for six months and whether it's a traditional marriage or not you can't have a wedding without a hence party right or at least some version of so I decided I wasn't having a hen's day because I'm not a chicken. So <laughs> I decided that we would have a vixen fest. Exactly one week before their not wedding, Beck's friends and family put on the most epic vixens fest there was. It was music festival themed. They dressed up like they were going to Coachella. They drank and danced all night while Mick and his mates spent their weekend away to surf shack being boys. It was perfect legit one of the funnest days I've ever had. Like everything about it was just amazing, everything. My mum did this beautiful speech. Everyone signed a copy of my favourite book, Oh, The Places You Go. Like it was just stunning. It wasn't the clearest night memory-wise. There was a little bit of champagne consumed. What Beck does remember is breaking her thumb, being a bit too overzealous opening an umbrella as you do, traditional vixen fest custom and all that. But she was about to find out a broken thumb a week before her wedding was the least of her worries. Yeah, I woke up the next morning and um, I had a message from Instagram, an Instagram alert that said that Emily wanted to send me a message. And I'm like, what? Was she dreaming? Was she still drunk? It had been years since Emily had injected herself into their relationship. Years since they'd fought over her, worried about her, or thought they might ever hear from her again. Years since either of them had had any contact with her. Yet here she was, her name staring out of Beck's DMs, a week before her wedding. Oh, just the full, uh, like, cold shivers from the stomach up, do you know what I mean? Like... And suddenly, despite the hangover and everything, you're just so awake. She didn't know what to do. So what to do in a time of potential crisis that may or may not involve the man you're meant to be marrying in a week? You call your bestie. So, yeah, I rang my best friend and we chewed it through and then eventually decided that we'd open, we, I would open the message. Um, And, yeah, it turned out to be a whole bunch of messages. I just went white, cold. I think the first message said something like, if you want to go ahead and fake marry him, you can. 
just know that I've been fucking him for the last six months. Well, actually, your whole relationship. Ha, ha, ha. But that wasn't all. If you don't believe me, just have a look at my Instagram. So um, when I looked at her Instagram, there were photos of them naked in bed together, (laughs) publicly available on her Instagram, only of his hands and her, like, naked thigh or whatever. But I'm a hand person. As I said to him probably 85 times afterwards, I would have preferred it was a photo of your penis. I don't, like... How dare you think I don't recognise your hands? Like it was more intimate to me and there were photos that were obviously framed of him holding a beer next to her champagne. So she's taking these romantic getaway photos of them during our relationship um, when I thought he was on business trips or whatever I thought he was doing and they're very framed photos of his hands on her naked body or choosing champagne with her or da 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 and it was to me just I feel physically sick thinking about it now like of like his like they were so obvious he knew that she was taking those photos like and yeah during our relationship so her Instagram was like this fucking time capsule to what ended up being their story which had existed for our entire relationship and I just collapsed. I showed her my phone and I just, I was howling. I just couldn't, I couldn't breathe. There it was, evidence, proof that the whole time she trusted her partner, despite numerous signs, red flags and even people telling her stories, she'd loved and trusted him and the whole time he'd been lying. Recklessly at that, but she'd trusted him enough to not be that girl who stalked her partner's ex on social media. The next part, Beck says, is a bit of a blur. The shock took over and sent her into a daze. She remembers calling him and asking him to come home, but she doesn't even remember crying. such a weird time. How did I even drive home? I was in so much shock. I look back at that immediate period, especially. I didn't cry. Maybe I yelled at him a tiny bit. I remember him telling me not to drink and smoke um, because I was still smoking a wee bit at that time in my life. And it was, by the time we met here, it was still really early. It was probably only 10 or 11 in the morning. And I remember him telling me that I shouldn't be drinking. And he'd brought back an esky full of booze from the surfing weekend. And like that was one of the only vivid memories I have of being really pissed off. I'm like, really? Really? That's our problem. Like open the next bottle of wine, light the next cigarette and be like, fuck you, mate. I'm going to do what I want. Like, yeah. And other than that, I think that was the only time I remember being angry with him that day was when he told me not to drink and smoke. The rest of the time was just, I need to understand what I don't know. Like just tell me everything. I've always coped much better when I have the information, whatever the information is. And it obviously became really clear to me at that point that I was seriously lacking six and a half years of information. Um, And I don't know. I just, obviously shock has to be part of it. So he explained. In front of her best friend, he explained that he'd had an on and off relationship with Emily the whole time. 
Since that very first night she saw Mick kissing Beck at the pub, she'd gone back to it. He told Beck it had been on and off, but for the last six months it had escalated. Trips away together when he said he was on business, nights at her house when he said he was staying late at work. Mick and his ex-wife had had a full-blown affair. It was such a shock to everybody that we were all in shock. He's this lovely guy that we all just thought was such a lovely guy. And now he's sitting in front of us saying that he's been sleeping with his ex-wife for our entire relationship and that the the six months, the, the last six months in the lead-up to the big reveal was um, a full-blown affair that during which he'd been choosing between the two of us. And... It, it, it was literally like a cricket bat to the head. You just stood there sort of m- mute. He told Beck all of this to finally be truthful. Well, they were meant to be committing to each other for life next week, after all. He wanted the ceremony to go ahead because he'd ended the affair with Emily four days before that and in his mind, and he'd been apparently trying to end the affair with Emily for a number of weeks And he'd finally ended it and he was sure that I was the person he wanted to spend the rest of his life with and he was completely committed. So he wanted the ceremony to go ahead. So I guess that's probably part of the reason that I didn't get angry because I had to fix that fucking problem. While Beck's brain was a mess, she was sure of one thing. The ceremony absolutely wasn't going ahead. So while she was dealing with this world-shattering, gut-wrenching, life-changing news Wanting to just lay in bed alone and ignore the whole world, she had to cancel a non-wedding. Oh, the irony. The trauma of that was the admin, like just the bizarre experience of the humiliation of saying that out loud to strangers. There was one thing she wasn't going to cancel, though. You remember in the Sex and the City movie when Big leaves Carrie at the altar and her friends go on her honeymoon with her? Yeah, that's what happened here. Beck's best friend wasn't going to let her miss this holiday she'd looked forward to for over a year. Plus, she still hadn't really broken down. Her friend was really worried about her and wanted to take her away from it all. God knew she needed it now more than ever. And whether it was being removed from the situation, removed from him, or just the cabin pressure, it was the plane trip to her would-be honeymoon that set her grief into motion. Gang of Youths Go Farther in Lightness album was in the Qantas app. Fuck, I can't even say it without crying. And I'd heard the album before, but I hadn't heard the album before. And the album took exactly the length of the flight from Melbourne to Brisbane and I cried. The, it was the first time I cried. And I don't know if you know that album very well, but it, they refer to it as like the healing album, right? It's There's a song on it called Do Not Let Your Spirit Wane. There's a song on it called The Heart is a Muscle, which is about, you know, the heart is a muscle and we have to make it strong. There's a song on it called Persevere. Like it was literally like that that whole album was written for me to listen to on that fucking day. So I didn't think about the fact that I was supposed to be going on this wonderful romantic journey. I thought about the fact that music was piecing my soul back together and, I think I let myself feel pain for the first time on that flight. That album and that band, she says, saved her. So I ended up writing them a letter and so that's what I spent 
a lot of the honeymoon doing. I didn't sit there thinking about what I would have been doing with him. I listened to music that my 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 soul needed to hear and then I wrote letters to those bands. So I wrote letters to the bands that were in my vows and I sent them um, these letters about, yeah, like cheers for getting me through the last week. And um, it was really cathartic, like I was on this beautiful tropical island and I just had my music and my pen and my best friend and I didn't think about him being there that much, I don't think. The confusion didn't end when she got home. Mick was there waiting, telling her he was sorry and wanted to make it work. She knew she couldn't trust him, but her whole world was also crashing down around her. She'd given up everything for this man. What was her life now without him? Without the kids she'd chosen not to have because of him? It was so tempting to forgive him, to try again. But she knew what she had to do. I was like, there's no, there's absolutely no chance of a future here, man. And I felt so strong and clear because, yeah, it just all made sense. Like I said, whatever decisions I was making, I was making them for myself. And, yeah, it was a fucking awful time. But I guess I feel like everything else was so out of my control for those six and a half years, that once I had the information, it was my fucking information and I was going to do what worked for me. It took a long time to start to heal and a lot of therapy. But what came as a surprise, even to herself, was that cutting ties with Mick and their former life was easier than she'd ever expected. The depth of the portrayal was so magnificent that it was hard to miss him because I just felt like I never knew who he was anyway. So what did I miss? An imaginary person or the shell of a man that presented a certain way? He was like a chameleon. He had no inner substance. Who he was when he was around me was a completely different man to who he was when he was around Emily and probably a completely different man to who he was when he was at work. And you can't live that sort of ethical duality and have any sort of moral compass. So I didn't, I missed the version of him I thought he was, but I don't think I, I I knew very early that that was potentially a, a fictional character. I realised after six and a half years I had no idea who this human I was living with was. Their breakup was two years ago now. In that time, Beck's done a lot of healing and rightfully she's pretty damn proud of herself. So I just tried to do all the right things. So I got a really good therapist and I journaled every day and I did some yoga teacher training and, you know, I meditated and I adopted a dog and... (laughs) I did all the right things and, yeah, lo and behold, if it didn't fucking work, like it wasn't great fun but you just do the work and I learned a lot about myself and I wouldn't wish that experience on anybody but I wouldn't take it back from myself because I would have no idea how powerful I am if I hadn't had to survive that and I wouldn't be as proud of who I am as a person if I hadn't had to survive that 
And I don't think I'd be as good at my job if I didn't have to survive that. Like you have to survive something really difficult like that. You don't have time to doubt yourself. You've just got to get the fuck on with it, man. Like, so it was a really empowering experience for me. It took me a long time to feel the humiliation because, of course, there's a humiliation aspect. Um, but by the time the shock wore off and I realised that I probably should feel humiliated, it's like, oh, well, I've been walking around for the last six months not feeling humiliated. There's probably not much point doing it now. And while she's found solace and even gratitude in her strength, there's still a lot of hurt, anger and resentment. She not only gave six and a half years of her life to this man, she possibly gave up the chance to have children. I was really angry. I was ferociously angry for a very long time, um, specifically about that. A 33-year-old woman has a whole list of different options that a 39-year-old woman doesn't. Um, and 40 by the time we broke up. I do think that it's the cruelest part of our relationship, but in some ways, um, but only because it's the only one that you can't fix, you know what I mean? You can't get back seven years of ovary health, but, you know, it's not. It's hardly the worst thing anyone's ever survived and it's certainly, I was afraid that it would make me bitter that it's going to somehow take my optimistic and positive nature and turn me into like a bitter, resentful human. Um, But I'm pretty confident that's not going to happen now. And, And maybe that's enough. Like maybe now you can just sort of shut up and live. As for love? I imagine that it will be hard when I fall in love again because I will have triggers and insecurities and panic. But dating again has been fun because you kind of get your head around those in different increments with different people and I've met some really cool guys but nothing that's stuck yet. Despite it all, Beck looks back on this horrendous period of her life with amazing clarity and undeniable positivity. I would not give back a day of the last two and a half years. Even the worst days when I was snot crying all over the dog, home alone, not wanting to call friend after friend because you don't want to burden, oh, so-and-so works late or they've got kids or da-da-da. Even on the loneliest and saddest days, I wouldn't give back a day of it because I'm happier now than I have ever been in my entire life and I can't be sure that I would be as comfortable with who I am if I hadn't had to get through that. Next time on Everyone Has an Ex. So he was found guilty of attempted murder of Nanette Clark and he got sentenced to 20 years, 13 years non-parole. So that on top of his sentence for fraud is 30 years with 20 years non-parole. It's a hefty sentence. Like people get less for murder. Everyone Has an Ex is written and narrated by me, Georgia Love. Produced by Linda Scott and edited by Matt Sofo. Thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you. If you like what you've just heard, please hit subscribe, write a review and leave us five stars. If you think you've got a better story, send it to us at everyonehasanx at mintymedia.com.au. That's M-I-N-T-Y media.com.au. And follow us on Instagram at at everyonehasanx.